Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Welcome to part three of a multi-part series on the U.S. Department of Justice Criminal Division's brand new Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs memo, or actually I should say updated, and that's actually in the title of the memo. Uh, This is building on uh, not just the uh, February 2017 memo that we've been talking about for the last few years, uh, but lots of other guidance, including the uh, FCPA guidance from a few years ago, the U.S. Attorney's Manual, uh, and other um, documents. Um, we talked a little bit about introduction. We talked about the first section on risk assessment. And today I want to talk about one of my favorite topics, uh, one that I have spoken on at length in this podcast and elsewhere, and that's written standards, policies, and procedures, as it's titled uh, in this document. Um, the preamble uh, of Part B, and this starts on page three of the memo. Again, the link to the memo will be in the show notes of this podcast. Uh, talks about uh, design, talks about uh, risk, uh, talks about whether the um, organization has specifically a code of conduct uh, that sets forth the organization's commitment to compliance. Um, these are things uh, that have, again, appeared in different places, but it's interesting that this is right up front. Uh, they're talking about design. Uh, they're talking about the methodology uh, in place for uh, putting together written standards, including code of conduct. They're talking about risk and risk assessment as a key component of your policies and procedures. And they specifically call out that cornerstone, that foundation uh, that they've been talking about in guidance for years now, uh, and in particular in the FCPA guidance of, of 2012, uh, the uh, department at that point um, made a point of talking specific, specifically about code of conduct. This is an interesting change because the um, uh, guidance from 2017 the, that this memo updates didn't call out code of conduct specifically, but it's right here. Uh, in the introductory paragraph of Section B, uh, that as a threshold matter, prosecutors should examine whether the company has a code of conduct that sets forth, among other things, the company's commitment to compliance uh, with federal laws, that it's accessible, and that it's accessible to all company employees. So right up front, they talk about code of conduct, and I was rather gratified to see that because uh, I I think that... uh, you know, we talk a lot about how important code of conduct is, but it really um, sharpens the mind uh, to have the Department of Justice say that as a threshold matter, they're going to look into whether the code exists and whether it is, for lack of a better term, effective uh, in, in, its, in, in its role uh, to set out the importance of compliance and whether it's accessible, whether the uh, population that it's meant to serve can actually use it as a tool. And then the last thing that I'm going to mention about this inter- introductory paragraph is the very last sentence. As a corollary, prosecutors should also assess whether the company has established policies and procedures that incorporate the culture of compliance into, day- into its day-to-day operations. This is very interesting, and this is new. 
uh, at least new in this context. They are clearly wanting to see standalone policies and procedures that relate back to the values of the organization, culture of compliance. So uh, what a lot of organizations have done over the last 10 or 15 years is go back and revise their code of conduct to make their code of conduct more of an aspirational document to imbibe the code of conduct with the culture of the organization and more importantly the values of the organization to make a, a, a value statement a mission statement about the importance of compliance and ethical culture what this tells me is that when they're looking at the standalone policies the policies and procedures that those also reflect that same standard. Uh, some companies have started this, but if your organization is one that hasn't, and you're probably in the majority out there that still have standalone policies that are not accessible, that are legalese, that are written by and for lawyers, uh, I think that this is a heads up to you that those policies are ineffective. That the expectation would be that those policies are going to incorporate the culture of compliance into day-to-day -day operations. So how are you going to do that? You're going to have to have policies and procedures that are at least as legible and understandable as your code of conduct. And I know some organizations are undertaking this uh, effort already, and I've worked with some clients that are trying to make their standalone policies much more readable, accessible, even using design elements and learning aids and all the other things that we now expect to see in codes of conduct in their standalone policies to try to, again, integrate these policies into uh, the wider compliance program in a useful way and make them actual uh, resources for your stakeholder population. Uh, you know, we make a big deal about looking at the grade level of a code of conduct. Well, you need to do the same thing with your standalone policies. That's the direction we're going in. And remember, the sentencing guidelines and this new statement from the Department of Justice and all the other standards that are out there from regulators, when they look to code of conduct and other, and other written standards, policies, and procedures, they, they couch them all together. It's policies and procedures. It's written standards. Uh, the terminology differs depending on whether you're looking at the sentencing guidelines or uh, DOJ guidance, but it's 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 all of your written standards, not just your code of conduct. We focus a lot on code of conduct, and the department clearly uh, is, is 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 as a threshold inquiry is going to look at your code of conduct. But we need to start thinking. I believe uh, the big bigger issue for most organizations that have updated their code of conduct in the last 10 years is to take a hard look at your standalone policies too and ask a lot of the same questions we're going to ask here about your standalone policies as well as your code of conduct. The first area of inquiry after the introductory paragraph is uh, title design. And the query here is what is the company's process for designing and implementing new policies and procedures and has that and has that process changed over time? And then the second query is, who has been involved in the design of policies and procedures? Have business units been consulted prior to rolling them out? These are uh, uh, similar or if not exactly the same queries that we saw in the February 2017 memo. And this goes back to what I've been really talking about a lot with regard to written policies, whether it's code of conduct or standalone policies. 
over the last few years. Traditionally, when we thought about um, drafting or revising a code of conduct or a standalone policy, we thought about it as a drafting exercise, whether that's bringing in other uh, professionals besides attorneys to try to make it more accessible. That's a whole other issue, which we'll talk about. Uh, but we think about it as a discrete project still. I think most organizations do. And what this is telling us is that there is a, there are, there, the, that it's not just the drafting of the code, it's what goes into it. What's the process? Who's consulted? Uh, how, are, how are operational parts of the organization involved in that process? If you go back and listen to some of the podcasts I've done about code of conduct and written standards, you'll know that I encourage people to think about any kind of code of conduct update or written standards update as a really a th having three major uh, parts to the process. And the first part is this whole preliminary phase. It's doing, uh, it's, it's, it's consulting any risk assessment. It's looking at what's out there. It's, it's defi helping define the risks that you need to address in that written standard. And it's consulting a wide group of stakeholders, including people in business operations and getting them involved in the process and having a repeatable process for reviewing and updating the code. That's design. Uh, it's not just uh, sitting down with a blank sheet of paper and redrafting the code of conduct and redesigning it. It's thinking about what goes into this code, what goes into these written standards, and who needs to be involved in that process to help us better understand how to address our compliance risks in these written standards. Second query, comprehensiveness. What efforts has the company made to monitor and implement policies and procedures that reflect and deal with the spectrum of risks it faces, including changes to the legal and regulatory landscape? Well, if you have a methodology or a plan that is repeatable, uh, then part of that is going to be periodically. Uh, and when we talk about periodically, when we're talking about code of conduct, that's most organizations are revisiting their code uh, and, and, and considering revisions at least on a, uh, every three-year schedule. Uh, most, most organizations, if you look at some uh, data that's out there from the, from the world's most ethical, from the Ethisphere Institute, for example, you'll see that most of them at least, at least review uh, their major written standards on an annual basis. And part of that comprehensive review, that comprehensiveness, ought to be looking at the risks and poten potential changes in risk for your organization. Has your organization acquired uh, a new business through M&A activity? That's happening a lot these days. Uh, has that exposed you to new risks that need to be addressed in your written standards? Uh, has the law changed uh, regarding uh, some function of your business? Uh, and how will that affect uh, your written standards and how you describe those risks and what to do and what not to do and where to go for resources to your uh, stakeholder population in your written standards. The third piece of uh, query here in part B, uh, and this is all on page four of the memorandum, by the way, is accessibility. Uh, again, this comes straight out of the memo that we saw a few years ago in 2017. Uh, the queries here are, how has the company communicated its policies and procedures to all employees and relevant third parties? If the company has foreign subsidiaries, are there linguistic or other barriers to foreign employees' access? This linguistic one uh, wasn't specifically addressed in the in the last um, uh, in the last memo. 
not as such anyway. Uh, but when we're talking about accessibility is how do you know uh, that your stakeholders have access to the document and have reviewed the document? Uh, well, to the first question, uh, you have to make it available um, for the stakeholders that are out there. Uh, if everybody's online, then you can get away with putting it on your intranet or delivering it electronically. For many organizations, even in 2019, that is not the case, and you still need to print up uh, physical copies and distribute them by hand uh, to certain parts of the population that just aren't online. Uh, perhaps some of your population uh, uh, are, are going to uh, need the code in a simplified form uh, because they don't uh, their their language comprehension and their even in their native language is not sufficient enough to read your code of conduct. You're going to have to figure out a way to communicate those standards to everyone, and you have to think about that. And part of that is thinking about how you distribute it uh, to populations that do not speak English. Well, the first thing you need to do, and this is very important, is whenever you're writing a written standard, it needs to be in simple English so that when it gets translated into 19 other languages, it's equally concise and understandable. Part of the problem of having your lawyers draft all of your policies and then just taking those and having those translated into the 19 different languages is all of that complexity is compounded and there's possible uh, more possible confusion, uh, more possible um, uh, incomprehensibility uh, added to that process when you have difficult English. Um, we've talked before about grade level. Grade level really varies depending on your population that you're trying to reach. For some organizations, their population is probably fine with the grade level 13 or 14, which is college level English. But for most, most organizations, you want to shoot for a grade level 10 to 12 uh, or high school level English, maybe lower depending on your population that you're trying to reach. And you want to keep it simple, you want to keep it concise, and you want to keep it shorter. Uh, the guidance from the department here doesn't really talk about this, but part of accessibility, in my mind, is having a document that people are actually going to read. Uh, you help ensure that by keeping the document short. And yes, Virginia, you can have a short code of conduct even if you're in a highly regulated space. There are financial organi uh, organizations in the financial sector, organizations in pharma and med device, uh, government contractors, who all have codes of conduct that are well under 8,000 words, uh, which is, depending on how it's laid out, 30 to 38 pages. Um, uh, or less, or much less. It's very doable, and that, to me, that's a big part of some, having something that's accessible because it's not accessible if people can't read it, even if they have it in their hands. The next query uh, is responsibility for operational integration. Who has been responsible for integrating policies and procedures? Have they been rolled out in a way that ensures employees' understanding of the policies? And in what specific ways are compliance policies and procedures reinforced in the company's internal control systems. So if you have the first part of the process, which is uh, preparing, uh, looking at risk assessment, uh, having a repeatable uh, methodology or design process, and if the second part is actually putting together uh, the written standard, then the third part is communicating that written standard. Uh, the rollout and ongoing training and communication that is equally important. So again, think about it as three parts. 
the first part, uh, and it's interesting here, uh, the other than accessibility, uh, the Department of Justice doesn't really focus on that middle part, on that part that we all tend to laser focus on, or at least have historically laser focused on, the actual drafting of the document, the actual design of the document, the creation of the, of the policy or the code of conduct. That is really only touched on with the, with the notion of accessibility. Uh, and, and even accessibility is looking at procedures in, in process, not just the, the, the finished product. But I think you, know, you have to have a finished product that's accessible uh, to, to meet that standard. But the rest of this, the rest of the inquiries that are being made here are around that first part, the prep, if you will, the, the, the groundwork, the homework, the research. Uh, the putting together the process, the consulting with the wide group of stakeholders, um, making sure that your policies and procedures actually address the risks that are on the ground for your organization. That's all uh, the first half of, uh, of the inquiries made here. And then the second half that we're talking about now is about the follow-up. How do you make sure uh, once you have the product, once you have the policy, uh, that it is uh, rolled out effectively, communicated effectively, that people understand it, and you keep it in their, uh, keep it in their, uh, in their mind. Uh, well, one is to have an effective rollout. Um, you know, this is more often than not done with code of conduct more than it is standalone policies. But there's no, again, no reason that you can't apply the same uh, uh, techniques and 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 uh, tools that we use for code of conduct for standalone policies. There's nothing that would stop you from doing that other than there is an increased level of uh, complexity because you have many more policies than you do codes of conduct. <laughs> uh, but it, it is uh, certainly uh, the tools that we use to roll out code of conduct could be used to roll out a brand new anti-corruption policy, for example. Uh, and, and then uh, sustaining that, keeping that in uh, the eye of the stakeholders, the employees of the organization, for example. Uh, I've talked about this before, and we'll have another podcast about this soon, and we'll be talking about it actually in the next podcast, which will touch on training and communications. Uh, communications, informal communications, are a key piece. If there's something that's really changed in the last three to four years, it's uh, uh, I see a more laser focus on informal communication. So if you're rolling out a policy in January on anti-corruption, then sometime in March you'd have a touch uh, point, a communication touch point on that new policy. Or maybe uh, once again in June, uh, if you roll out a new code of conduct, then you should be talking about that new code of conduct every month of that following year. Uh, take that opportunity to really engage the population uh, with uh, communication efforts. And that's... Uh, uh, kind of our traditional uh, communication efforts like um, uh, electronic or, or physical newsletters, uh, email blasts, posters. Those are all kind of traditional, but it's also non-traditional. Podcasts, for example. Um, videos, short videos. Um, providing manager materials so that they can have one-on-one -on -one conversation or group conversations with their direct reports about these different topics. Those can all be part and parcel of the effort not only for a rollout but a sustained um, uh, uh, integration operational integration that's what they're talking about well how do you integrate a policy or procedure operationally in your organization well you got to get the managers involved 
So you got to provide them with some communication material, both at rollout and subsequently, so that they can speak intelligently about the policy or procedure or the code of conduct, and then they can be advocates for that uh, resource on the ground. Then the last query in Part B of the new memo on page 4 talks about gatekeepers. What if any guidance and training has been provided to key gatekeepers in in the control processes, e.g. those with approval authority or certification responsibilities? Do they know what misconduct to look for? Do they know how to escalate concerns? Um, well, this talks, again, I think about those people I was just mentioning, uh, those managers in the middle, those people in the middle that have responsibility. So if we're talking about specific policies and procedures, and it, it actually calls out uh, processes here, so that would probably be more germane in most cases to procedures, but also to some of the written policies that have, uh, um, uh, for instance, uh, using anti-corruption as, as an easy example. Often cases in, uh, in either anti-corruption or gift entertainment uh, policies and procedures, there is some sort of threshold for getting manager approval, right, uh, for any kind of gift or entertainment. Uh, over a certain level or, or to certain uh, recipients or from certain recipients. Uh, well, uh, what kind of guidance and training has been provided uh, to the people responsible in, in that process, the people who are going to be the approvers or the people who are going to seek approval? And what does that look like? Um, and do those people know what, to, what red flags to look for within that system that's been set up? Uh, again, using um, gifts and entertainment uh, pre-approval as a as an easy exa example that many organizations have in place. Uh, what kind of red flags are you uh, training your approvers on that they ought to be looking for? Um, certainly, we in that situation train the back office folks, the people in accounting and uh, um, uh, that are looking at expenses and, and other gift and gift gift approvals. They know, or at least should know, and have some experience with what the red flags are. But what about the, the managers in the field that, that have some sort of approval responsibility? And what about those people that you um, are expecting to enter information into those uh, pre-approval systems or, or ask uh, for pre-approval through whatever process you have in place? What kind of training have they had uh, to look out for red flags or know when they need to ask questions or report concerns? Uh, so getting all of the people who are affected uh, by the um, policies and procedures that you put in place uh, educated and making sure that they understand uh, when to raise concerns. That's going to be part of the inquiry on your when they're looking at the effectiveness of your policies. So if you have a policy out there uh, that puts some sort of... Um, uh, a responsibility on the backs of a manager or somebody who needs to um, makes, take some sort of affirmative act to comply with your policy, how are you going out there and educating those individuals and how are you making sure they know what to do in situations uh, when they need to uh, ask questions and report concerns? Uh, what kind of uh, review have you done on that recently? That's an interesting one. Um, so that is uh, the end of part B of this brand new memoranda. We're going to keep talking about it here. I'm going to try to get at least two or three podcasts out per week, if not more. 
uh, till we get through it completely. Uh, but I want to spend some time on each of these because I think it's worth your time, worth my time to discuss it in more detail. But next time we're going to talk about uh, training and communication. Um, uh, 50% of that topic I think is still uh, overlooked by many organizations and shouldn't be. And we're going to talk about what the Department of Justice, the guidance the Department of Justice has provided us just last week on that topic in particular. Also going to have some uh, new uh, webinars coming up here in the summer with uh, my friends at Clear Law Institute. I'm going to be ready probably to announce the few, first few of those dates here in the next week or so. So keep uh, a lookout for that. Uh, as always, if you have questions or concern, questions or concerns, questions or or suggestions, uh, maybe concerns, concerns about my mental health because I do a, a weekly podcast on compliance. Uh, uh, please do not hesitate to reach out to us at compliancebeat.com or moreheadconsulting.com. And as always, I uh, really appreciate it if you can subscribe to the podcast. Uh, that makes all the difference in the world to us. And until next time, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.